The Third Man Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Third Men Podcast. We are Jack White and Third Man Records History Program. And I am but your humble co-host, Paul Kaminsky. I'm your other co-host, James Kaminsky. And we have a special guest with us today. Well, you're you're like a regular to the show at this point. <laughs> You've been on several times now. But uh, this time you're going to be on to join us for a whole episode discussion. We're really excited about this. Yes. Yeah, we have Jesse Zilka, who is from the Porch Podcast, the Pearl Jam track-by-track fan podcast of note. I mean, one of the biggest. Oh, well, I don't know that we are now because we've kind of rerouted how we do things. But thank you for saying that. It makes me feel nice. How about this? The most interesting uh, the most I'm interesting, go yeah, cool. Yeah, the go biggest to us. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> In your hearts. We, yes. And also, Jesse of Jesse Carl Vinyl, the wonderful yes. shop down in Florida. What's the town again, location? Lakeland. Lakeland, Florida. Yes. And listeners to the show and viewers of the Third Men podcast open show will remember Jesse, who took us on a tour of Jesse Carl Vinyl, which was awesome for that. And you'll also remember Jesse joined us for not only the Pearl Jam Jack White crossover episode, which remains one of our top downloaded episodes. Has it enough. been beaten? Has it been beaten? Uh, let me pull. Well, I can pull up the old I stats. I don't think so. Ben Blackwell was close. Oh, I have no doubt that Ben Blackwell. Yeah. So 
if we take the thing I'm pretty sure is a click farm out of the equation, then yes, Jesse, you're still on top. Woohoo! Yeah! I would have been if, totally fine losing that spot to Ben, though. For real. Uh, well, I think the click farm likes Ben. <laughs> because the click farm, even though you're in the top spot, the click farm, I'm pretty sure it's a click I keep saying, I feel like I'm saying click farm a lot. You are. I mean, that's because it's a super foreign word that makes no sense at all. Uh, that episode, Ben Blackwell breaks it down. Episode 100 of the podcast is 14 times more downloaded than Pearl Jam and Jack White. Oh but again, the, dis- the disparity between one and two leads me to believe something's fishy. Mm. Uh, and it's not just the tuna I was eating straight out of the can like a homeless man a moment ago. <laughs> Although you have Karen Elson is creeping up on you. you she's got about 30, 30 downloads before she tops it. So we're it's a tight race. That's okay. It's a tight race. That was an episode from a, quite a while ago. Yes. Was that like yeah. two years ago? Yes. Although 2020 was a, was lost to me, which I was just explaining. Wait, I was that in 2020? That was March 12th, 2020. No so that kidding. Was like the week of everything shutting down. Maybe that's why it's so fucking high. It's because everybody was at home. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I was telling... um. Ariel, yesterday, I, I forgot what age I was because, like, 2020 just completely screwed everything up in terms of timekeeping for mm-hmm. me. So I was like, I don't, I have, I honestly I couldn't tell you. Like, it, it was a very weird, surreal moment. That might um, also be your 30s, James. Just, it could be. Oh my God, don't tell me that. I turned 30 in February. I can't handle it. Oh, then you forget your age. It's a, <laughs> it's a symptom. James is a fresh, let's see. 31, 2? How I'll the be... fuck old are you? See? You're See? 32. You're 32, or you're about to be 32. I think about to, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks he's about to be. He thinks I think. it. <laughs> he's not sure, but he thinks it. No. I'm on the other side of 35, and it's it's it stinks over here. It really stinks. <laughs> I know. I'm dreading my 30th birthday. <laughs> no, I don't it's okay. Do it. Anyway. Long story short, you are listened to by most people who listen to our podcast <laughs> and heard your episodes. You also joined us for the Dead Weather episodes last yes. year. Yes. A blast. We love doing that. But today we have a topic that we tailored, Jesse, specifically to your area of expertise as a, um, let's call a boots on the ground general in the <laughs> record store army, the vinyl resurgence. We're calling this episode Jack White. And the Vinyl Revolution, we're going to talk a little bit about Vinyl Records' comeback and how the history of Jack White interacts with the history of vinyl in the last, you know, 20, 25-odd years or so. Because it's really fascinating to think about when I was a teenager, vinyl was just about the most foreign thing in the universe to me because CDs were simply the currency. It was the, you know, the turn of the millennium. I had never even held a record, I don't think. Like, Dad had his collection. You did. You had the, the Star Wars kids records. We had, like, a kid's turntable, Sure, we, we did not have a turntable. We had a couple Star Wars 45s mm-hmm. that came with books. Yes. But it felt like an artifact. Like, it felt like a collector's <laughs> item that I shouldn't be touching. But I... So, records completely foreign to me. I remember the first time I bought a record on my own. I think it was a $5 used copy of Red Rose Speedway. And when I was, I must've been 16 or 17. 
in Manhattan. And I remember thinking it was like I was getting one over on somebody. By Man, a $5 record in Manhattan? That's a good deal. It was yes. it was out of some dusty box in a in a flea market kind of setting, like not dissimilar you, from where. You, okay, I need I now need to know Jesse's first record, and and the age. I honestly never had a time in my life where I didn't have records around. Uh, my parents, really? my parents got rid of a lot of their albums when they got into CDs and tapes, but they always kept like their favorites. So when I decided to start collecting, I basically just nabbed what they had. So. Dreamboat Annie, Heart, let's see what else? Frontiers, Journey, Paradise Theater, Sticks. Um, those <laughs> nice. were really my first ones. My actual, my earliest memory with like falling in love with a record though, my grandmother had her record player set up when I was a little girl and she had a bunch of kids' records. So I would play them as a kid and she had one that was Wonder Woman and it had a comic <laughs> inside. And I loved that record. So when I decided to start collecting, I called her up and I was like, I'm coming over and I'm going to take that from you. So I would claim <laughs> that one as like my fa- favorite first one. You but, So you robbed your grandmother for her for yeah, first record. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That's, that's nice. I mean, we were talking about you having a rapper named Gangster, gangster name earlier. Like, gangster. I, you know, what can I say? <laughs> yeah. I went to a yard sale that was down the street from our house when I was, I must have been 12. I wasn't in high school yet. And I bought the last record in the Bangladesh set. Just the, the last the one. concert. Yeah, just the last one. And yeah. the back of the book. Mm-hmm. like the, So it had like the back of the box the booklet that went in it and the last record and I bought that I think for 50 cents and I don't know why I got that one I think it just had a connection to George Harrison and it was a very wild thing that I had and I couldn't play on anything and I just owned for no good reason because our father owned the whole thing why did I have this thing and anyway so basically you bought a photo of a starving Bangladeshi child (laughs) that's what's (laughs) wild about it and the Indian section like that's what you I mean 50 cents is actually a, a steal for that but yeah so James James and I had records our father obviously had a turntable big music guy as anyone who's listened to the yesterday and today podcast will tell you but again, I never really knew or understood what to go do with these mythical things. And I sort of had them in my college dorm almost like, again, like conversation pieces. You know, they were sort of around. Yeah. I had a girlfriend in college that was making ashtrays out of melting them. Mm-hmm. And now I think back at that and I go, good God, like, don't, <laughs> I wish you didn't do that to destroy these things. But it wasn't until I was living on my own must have been i don't know just after college or so that i got my first record player and then i actually started to to play them a bit so jesse when did you start collecting like what like i we know you you robbed your grandmother for wonder woman and but after that like were you buying modern stuff were you buying the classics that you loved already or i started being interested in it i approached my parents about it when i was 15 and i was like i really kind of want to you know, again, I had all their stuff that I would see at the house, and I just thought it was really cool. Now, what what year are we talking about here? Because this is going to be important later. Oh, uh, let's see, two thousand and seven, I think. That is going to come back later, so I'm just putting that out there. Two thousand. So two thousand seven, I was fifteen. 
And uh, my parents were like, you don't want to do this. Like, why are you doing this? This is a waste of time. And so I was like, no, I want to do I want to do it. And so, you know, my dad has always been the type that he loved to go to garage sales and things like that. So I would just grab ones that I liked. Um, I remember we have a, a town about an hour and a half from here that has a huge flea market every Monday. And I bought I think I was a little older than 15, but it was one of because for the first year or two, I think my parents thought I was just like. I don't know, taking drugs or something. I don't know. <laughs> they just like didn't believe me. And so like the few that they had, they were like, here, you can have them. But like they weren't like helping me pursue this like passion I had. So I think my first purchase where they were like, oh, I think she might be serious was I bought a copy of Purple Rain at a flea market Wow, yeah. for like $3 nowadays. Right. It's like unheard of. After that, I kind of was, I brought it back. My parents were like, okay, maybe she was kind of legit about this. So they would take me to like, you know, if we were in a certain town, they would take me to record stores. I had a bunch of family up in Ohio, Cincinnati. So they would take me to Everybody's, which is a record store up there. Anytime we'd go visit at that point. And I bought like Bruce Springsteen there. I bought like, um, I'm trying to think of who else I bought there. I only remember buying The River by Bruce Springsteen there. Um, That was the one I really remember. And then I actually ended up never getting a turntable until I was 20. So I collected that whole time. And my first new-ish one I got at Ernest Tubbs in Nashville. And it was Sign No More by Mumford & Sons. That was my first, like, brand new, hadn't been played, sealed, all pretty. You know, I was super excited about it. I mean, I still am. (laughs) I love that album. But... You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Sign no more, no more. One first in sea, one on shore. My heart was never pure. You know. about uh, Ernest Tubbs in Nashville and it's interesting that you referenced 2007 because what I'm going to do here is uh, I'm going to give a bit of a preamble but then I'm going to walk through the history of the vinyl resurgence and where Jack was sort of periodically throughout these time frames and the year 2007 is going to come up quite a bit and I don't think it is necessarily by accident or I don't think you were alone in at that time finding vinyl as a as an interest and it's so funny i have the same story james it's the same story you do i would suspect a lot of other people have that same story where we didn't have turntables but mm-hmm. we were amassing these things amassing these records there's a lot of different reasons could be for that you know the large art you know that comes in it you couldn't give the damn things away in the 90s and early 2000s. And so really you have these gluts of very cheaply priced classic albums Mm -hmm. out there. But they come back in a big bad way. And Jack White, you know, I guess going into this, I was expecting more of a direct effect from Jack specifically on the vinyl resurgence. And what I found was that he is really more of a piece in an overall push back to vinyl as opposed to being the single driver. He's simply a great 
spokesperson mm-hmm. for it. I was expecting to see some like weird like info that I was going to find where he was part of some cabal to like put out subliminal airwave ads everywhere to say people like I was expecting some kind of direct hand in it. You're saying and- in 2007 you were kind of expecting him to have given me telepathy to start buying records. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. I was already Rags connected to Jack in 2007. You're saying right. by exactly. love. Yes, yeah. connected by love. Connected yes, by love. by love. But yeah, so I didn't find that. I found that he was part, much more part of a, a broader cog in the in the wheel. But we'll start here with why does Jack White love vinyl so much? It's a, quite a legitimate question. I mean, we, we think we know the answer. I mean, we've heard him talk about it a bit, but I was looking through and trying to find actual pull quotes from Jack from some time over the years to just kind of give me the exact his wording reason. And what I found was a quote where he said, vinyl in the music world is one of the most reverential ways you can experience this music. It's very hard to pause vinyl. It's not like CDs and then digital and then streaming where you are in control. You can stop wherever you want. You can pick and choose. Vinyl is dropping the needle, sitting down, and paying attention. And I'm sure you can say, oh, there's some nostalgia thing laying on your stomach as a teenager and looking at the album cover and liner notes and reading who's on there. And that may be lost nowadays to a lot of teenagers. But I think at some point, if you love music, no matter who you are, you will get to that point. You will care who played bass on track three and who produced the B-side of this record. That's for people who really love the music. And what he's keying in on there is part of his mission statement behind his whole oeuvre, which is the idea of control, giving up control and assuming control, Uh, giving up control of environment and assuming control within that environment, allowing music and these broader forces to kind of guide him wherever they're going to guide him and he works within those boundaries that explains a lot of why he loves this stuff and it's stuff we know already about him but i thought that was a particularly like elegant summation mm-hmm. which is a thing i heard from our dad a lot which is like when you he waxed poetic a lot to me as a kid about how you would put on music and sit and listen and look at the artwork and you wouldn't pay attention to anything else you would just be paying attention to that which you know was different than how i would listen to music which would be multitasking doing a million different things also vinyl illuminati is is a is a, a kind of word <laughs> wordplay we missed yeah for a second um came in there after the buzzer but it's sorry yeah, but i mean yeah. i was really thinking about it for a while <laughs> he was, like, oh, wait, he was just right brewing on that through your whole mm-hmm. uh little quote there yeah yeah well, I was trying to find quotes of like, when did he actually hold a record for the first time? Or like, when was there a moment? You know, we were talking about those moments of when we found our first record, our first record arrived to us. I actually couldn't find a specific quote for that. If we ever wind up talking to him, I'm actually dying to know. But I did find this Can quote. Can I be a part of that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, listen. It, We've been trying. It's not like we haven't if been trying. If you get him on, like, you're going to have like all of these guests, uh, people that have been saying like, if you get him on, we're coming on too. <laughs> it's going to have like 12 people in his face. I was looking for a quote like that and I couldn't find one, but I found this. And I think that this may, and I don't mean to armchair psychoanalyze, a lot of this is going to be not supposition, but a lot of this is going to be us reading into things and stuff is what we do here on the show. But we try to have some sort of basis for what the analysis means 
or where the analysis is coming from. So I found this quote from the New Yorker that um, Jack White's Infinite Imagination article from a few years back. And uh, I guess they had tracked down and, and talked to some of his brothers. And this is a quote from that article. His brothers and sisters would take him, meaning Jack, to the movies. And when his musician brothers needed a drummer, they said, keep a beat for us. Our father did building maintenance. He also did radio and TV repair. And that merged into hi-fi systems. He had reel-to-reel tape recorders, and we always had music. So not only do you have the brothers who are, in some cases, significantly older than Jack, who would have been around when vinyl was maybe not at its peak, but certainly still extremely prevalent in pop culture, but you also have a father who we know Jack you know, revered, being hands-on <laughs> with this equipment and actually making repairs and changes and things. And I would have to think that that must have had an effect on a young Jack White who's seeing this guy he idolizes, you know, actually getting in there and working with the technology with his hands. And there's a lot of interaction you have to do with a, a record, a vinyl record, in order to play it. You have to drop the needle. You have to. Put the, there's mechanisms involved. So I don't know if I'm way off base there, but I would assume that that had to do with at least part of it. I think anything moving, anything moving, mechanical related to art is, I think, a beautiful thing. I think you know, it's, I think we we're missing that in the digital age. I think once even CDs would had great sounding audio the moving part was hidden inside the machine. You yeah. didn't see the CD spinning on most models. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, before that, it was the, the vinyl for 100 years, even the reel-to-reel tapes or even cassette tapes, you could see the cassette moving. And then when we switched over to digital, we didn't see anything, parts moving anymore. And I think it's sort of like looking at a campfire. You're sort of hypnotized and you're reverential to taking part in it. Even in a movie theater, if you're there, you know, uh, in some sense, this projector is turning, even if you don't see it. Yeah. You know in the back of your mind, and there's a projector turning and, yeah. and um, I think that's really important in the age of invisible music to have a real physical product you can hold and smell and you can watch turn and you take part in it you drop the needle and you can't help but feel like you're part of that magic and you're reverential to it you sit down and then when the side's over you flip it over you're, you know, it's not just like pause it I got a phone call and, yeah. You yeah. Know, and you, where you're in control the music is in control of you so it's amazing that, that so many people have felt this way too about in the last 10 years or so, this, this revival of vinyl has taken such a huge, amazing turn. It's become so popular. And, and the real difference between analog and digital, which I think that is sort of, uh, I mean, you can get into some real uh, psychological thoughts about how it affects you, but imagine analog is this. Analog is a pencil on a piece of paper, and the pencil is dragging and drawing, and it's never lifted. And digital is a pencil making many, many dots. Right, right. And there's always divisions between them. No matter how high the sample rate is or whatever, there's always going to be divisions in between those samples. Right. So whether that affects you subconsciously or not, or the sound of the overall soul of it, uh, who knows? But it does make a point that on tape or on a vinyl that that, that needle or that magnetic tape is a, a pencil on a piece of paper that's never lifted off. Yeah. And I think whatever inherent things are in, like a, there's tape wobble, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the tape, the machine itself, the groove is slight, you know, 
variations in it. And those little movements, they change the, the, te the tempo of the song, the, the pitch of the song, and they're not very audible, but they're in there. When you can listen to an old record and a brand new Pro Tools recording, you can tell the difference between something that sounds really soulful, yeah. sounds really uh, magical, like it was, you, they, caught, they caught some magic at that moment. Uh, because of those slight variations in movement. Unlike a lot of his older siblings, his much older siblings, because he's the youngest of, what, 10 kids, I think? Yeah. You know, he was born into an era where he got to see multiple platforms of music come and go. So when he was born and when he was young, it was still very much vinyl. You know, it was still yeah. very much records. And then he saw 8-tracks, and then he saw cassette tapes, and then he saw CDs, and then he saw iTunes, and then he saw streaming. So... Jack has a uh, and his and any person around his age, not just Jack, but since we're talking about him, Jack has that perspective of seeing just how vastly the formats changed yeah. over those years. You know, he he kind of grew up with that. Whereas like for me, I did have cassette tapes when I was super young, but CDs were my more my era and then iTunes. And so when I look back on records, I'm like, these are so cool. They're so old and everything. <laughs> and he didn't really have that. Like, to him, right. it was just what he knew. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people our age, we love nostalgia so much. But I think everybody really does. And I think that I hate to call it nostalgic for him because I think it's way more than that. But I think it's just like, this has been in my blood since the beginning. Why is it not in everybody's? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, and that's where Jack is just singular in his thought processes. He's like, you know, this is how the world should be. This is how we should all be looking at music like this. And he's an intense dude who gets extremely into what he's into. Yeah. And we've talked about that on the show many times, or that's one of the, my re relatability points to him just on a human level is like, I also tend to get aggressively interested in things that I'm interested in. But I think Jack takes it sometimes to another level where he feels the need, like he really wants to participate in it. And I think part of the appeal to another generation or a, gen a generation separated from vinyl, where, like you said, we were just on CDs and cassette tape to a lesser degree, but I was fascinated that vinyl worked the way it did. Because mm -hmm. like I was so used to a digital system or tape system, and then seeing a little needles like rolling across a piece of plastic making a noise, but I didn't have the speakers on yet. And I could hear the noise coming out of the plastic. And I was like, well, how that work? Hey world, how that work? <laughs> that work? That's not real. That's magic. It's a um, weird magical thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's yeah. so, it's so weird, which might not have seemed as magical to people, you know, a few generations above us because it was just what they had and what they were used to. And you kind of, put blinders on when it's just the technology of the day right so it's it was a it was a weird fascination i had when i first discovered that and i was like oh wow that's pretty cool you know going back to what you were saying about jack's father working and tinkering with all of these different machines it really puts into perspective because to me jack is not only about the the record itself jack is about the process of even creating the record and how mm -hmm. that all comes to be i mean look at the detroit third man with his pressing plant what was that pbs special that he did the american um epic yes where they took those really really old old pressing formats where they would sing right into it and it would press it right there where it would like you know get it on the plastic right there like 
he's not even just into the music. He's into the mechanic side of it. Like, he's into how the machine works, like, the different parts and how it operates and how those parts can cause this, which causes this, which causes this. So it even goes, for me, I think the reason that a lot of people feel like Jack White spearheaded the resurgence is because, let's use Pearl Jam as a good example. Pearl Jam is every single record they've ever put out through their entire career, they put on vinyl every time. Even when vinyl was not even a thing to people. Jack White did the same thing for the most part. But the thing that I think separates Jack White from Pearl Jam, who was right along with him doing the same thing, is that Pearl Jam loves the music, but they're not really caring about what's going on back here. Jack is like, okay, I want to know from point A to point Z what is going on, how this is happening. Can I show these people how it's happening? Okay, let's make it a even bigger thing in point D and point F. You know what I'm saying? So it's just... He just wants to have his hands on every single piece of putting music that's just in the ether, in our minds, and our souls into this format. Which kind of lends itself to the not only the music Jack's creating, but the place in which he's creating it, the Detroit garage scene. Me and Paul have talked about this elsewhere. Uh, it's a very do-it-yourself mm. sort of situation. And so he's doing all this himself or with the help of Long Gone John. And he's seeing all this process and he's in the nitty gritty of it all. Whereas Pearl Jam, though the grunge scene had had its fair share of do it yourself. I mean, obviously, like with doing like posters and zines and and all that being kind of in the ether at that point, the actual musical output of it and the production of it was not as integral Mm -hmm. as to like Detroit where you had this one like everybody had a weird record company in detroit at the time and was putting out this stuff so i think it it was also top of mind and had a lot to do with where he was mm-hmm. there's some trade-off too because while the cd era digitized music and made it more spectral in the sense that you can't physically see the cd playing the sound it did open up in the 90s and 2000s the capacity for people to burn their own music very easily where you can't just go out and cut your own vinyl record without going through either tremendous expense or somehow getting a lathe together and like figure like there's so much more it's so much more complicated and difficult to produce a vinyl record than it was to burn a cd and so there's a trade-off there because on the one hand yeah the diy aspect of actually participating in the music is cool but I think CDs gave you something else, too, in the sense that you could participate in a different kind of way. But, Jesse, I wanted to go back to something you said because I think it's really at the heart of this discussion, which is Jack's age specifically. You know, you, me, and James, we're around the same age. I think I'm, I'm about five years older than you, give or take, somewhere in that window, and four years older than James. But we're all basically in, that, in the age where vinyl wasn't a thing. <laughs> for us mm-hmm. but yeah you're absolutely right it would have been the currency for jack up to a certain point mm-hmm. <laughs> then you get cassettes really spike and then cds rule the roost and it's just so fascinating for a guy like him to be at the heart of that and to be at that particular juncture in history because if he was born in the 60s 
there wouldn't have been really an issue really because eight tracks yeah were kind of a thing but not in the way vinyl was like vinyl was still the currency cassettes too i mean cassettes sort of hummed along a little bit but it wasn't until the 80s where those things really picked up steam so it's fascinating that he happened to be the age he was at when he came to this so actually being able to track the vinyl resurgence is oddly difficult because the music business doesn't have a great way of always tracking every vinyl record sold and that's one of the things i came back to time and again in this research was like to get accurate numbers was actually really difficult and anytime they claimed to give you an accurate number there was always this caveat of like yeah we think Mm -hmm. so this is uh, via pitchfork in the era of data overload when streaming analytics can break down a song's popularity by the most minute detail vinyl metrics can still be pretty murky who's truly tallying up what we buy at some grimy venue's merch table. Plus, fledgling one-person labels typically don't report their sales to data trackers. That was interesting. I did not know that. Even Jack White's Third Man Records doesn't report most of its sales either, according to co-founder Ben Blackwell. This is from 2017 or 18, something like that. So that may have changed. I don't know. Uh, But I thought that was interesting. They actually called out Jack and Third Man. I feel like that's in step with him, not really caring. (laughs) (laughs) Captured Tracks owner Mike Sniper, who was a buyer at New York City's Academy Records in the mid-2000s at the start of the vinyl resurgence, remembers certain indie records selling, quote, hand over fist before the numbers actually reflected it. It's not a young crowd exactly, is it? We're all oldies, and it's probably because people, we understand what the vinyl is I've seen the decrease in it and now I'm seeing the increase and by di- without a doubt it's still the best format with the popularity increase of music streaming sites such as Spotify and global media player giants iTunes vinyl sales have still continued to increase it's people wanting to uh, consume something that's a little bit more real it's a little bit more authentic um, and so it kind of goes side by side with that but um so that's, you know, it's great for us because when people come in our store, I think they realize that it's a place that really cares about the product, really knows a lot about the music. And so, you know, it's much better than the equivalent going on iTunes and just click download. You know, it's, uh, it's not so much experience. When you download something, you know, it's an invisible file on your computer. You can listen to it and it's convenient and that's fine. But there's no uh, relationship between you and the thing itself. And yeah, I think there's a general dissatisfaction amongst youngsters, particularly with that. You know, they see it as being convenient, but if it's an act that they really like, you know, if they want to have something tangible. And as a format, the CD just isn't very attractive. Whereas a nice 12 inch record is. So, as with so many vinyl records themselves, the official figures are embedded with imperfections, which I thought was just, I wanted to get that out there at the top of this discussion. Just so like big old caveat arena here. We actually don't know how much they're selling. They may be selling actually a lot more than what we think they are. Well, and you have to remember too, I'm not sure when in the nineties this happened, but when CDs, like you said, became King, people started down ticking how many albums they were pressing at one time. So like in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 
you would have hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands being issued out to record stores or coming directly from labels and club editions to homes, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. When people stop buying vinyl, when people stop caring about records, they would take those hundreds of thousands and they'd knock it down to 5,000 copies. Yep. So it can be, I can imagine it would be really hard to figure out that that gap of time because nowadays, just from my experience as a person that buys new new releases and puts them in my store, we get told how many are getting pressed. Like we're especially if it's like limited or like a color variant or something like that, you know, hey, there's gonna be like four thousand of these pressed, hey, there's gonna be ten thousand of these pressed, or like going back to record store day. Where, you know, each some uh, releases will have 500 copies pressed. Some will have 40,000 copies pressed. So mm-hmm. the way that they run and operate that whole system, I don't see how that lends to really knowing what a sales trend for, an, for a release is going to be. I just don't see how that can be super accurate when you're pressing really in, in the scope of the world. You're pressing very little onto mm-hmm. LP still. But what's funny is that exact same situation lends itself to a more accuracy storm for well, a perfect storm for <laughs> vinyl collecting in general coming back because you have less vinyl being pressed, which creates a collector's market for people wanting a rarity of a band or something that they like. And then on top of that, you have the hundreds of thousands of copies of every Led Zeppelin record or whatever, Mm -hmm. like the back catalog of records goes back to the start of like music being recorded with vinyl. So you have this huge inventory of old records to get people interested that are, nobody's really wanting. So they're cheap. And then you have the very rare vinyl that people are seeking. And so they're starting these collections and then adding onto it with their favorites and it just kind of snowballs out of control into Harvey Picar land where you're buying just a crate of records every day and, and living in that. So yeah, I think that's an interesting dichotomy you have there with the lowering of pressings and stuff. Well, and two, just in the past two-ish years, um, really since COVID started, and I don't know, I can't speak for every record store owner, but I can speak for myself, even with the stuff like, let's just use, I don't know, Dark Side of the Moon, Right. That album was pressed, millions of copies were pressed of Dark Side of the Moon. There are millions of copies. If you go on Discogs and look at how many variants of Dark Side of the Moon, there's like 700 different variants of presses. And who knows how many, the number of count of how many of that press was put out, right? So, I mean, you're just, the numbers are endless. It is getting so hard to find that stuff because there was a resurgence in the mid-2000s and there has been a massive one just in the past two or three years, like really to me, I've noticed it in the past two years where people are buying everything up. Everything is going up in price. A record that we would have priced at $5 two years ago is going for $10 now. It's crazy. Like Toto 4, right? Okay. Toto's okay, right? Okay. I don't care for Toto. So I, this kind of is my soapbox. We, I remember <laughs> when I opened my store, that was like a $5 record. And we had endless amounts of it. Now it's going for $20 on the retail market. 
$20 and they are super Re- hard to find. Uh, second hand or? Yeah, second or hand. New. Yeah, second, second hand. hand. They're going for 20 bucks second hand. Wow. Uh, that's wild. Yikes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Toto deserves it. They're a great band. <laughs> you can like who you like. I, 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 do, I don't I think care that much about Toto. It's to me, like, it's not even about the music. It's about, and maybe if this is my brain having to wrap around it, but like three, four years ago, I've been doing this for six years. That was a five, six dollar album. Why if all of a sudden is it $20? Well, one, people use Toto on social media, YouTube. You know, Jimmy Fallon did a skit with Justin Timberlake and everybody fell in love with Africa, whatever. It's just wild how all of these things are just trending up. Everything is trending up. records like dark side there's millions of copies out in the world and they're still going for like 40 dollars yeah 30, an album 40 like it's crazy yeah. this is why i'm so happy you're on the show today jesse because you have such a, a a unique amongst us perspective in what's real in the in the, in record stores and i can come at it from my experience in the comic book world and vinyl and comic books are really really akin to one another yes they are They're specialized markets that used to be much more mainstream much more pop culture everybody had them for a time now they've kind of pigeonholed into mm-hmm. a very specific kind of person and then that market becomes a um a certain amount of people and dollars. It's almost like uh, it's almost like there's this great big river, and then it just there's this pool off to the side, and and this, the pool is only a certain size. But then over time, it has the capacity to kind of maybe get bigger. But the the markets are so similar. So I'm very interested to hear the the ins and outs of that. I do want to get to the demise of CDs before we start in on my very, very specific questions for you <laughs> about how you order vinyl. But uh, so I want to take us back to 1988. Ah, oh, it was a similar time. James wasn't Toto alive. Toto was on the radio. Toto was on the radio. Toto was on the radio. I was not alive. <laughs> I was but a humble lad of three with my oversized lollipop and one of those hats like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man and <laughs> and my knee socks and licking and going, Daddy, I would love a, I would love a soda at the soda shop today. Whatever kids did in 19. Wait, there were soda shops in the 80s? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, I haven't finished Stranger I Things. It. I couldn't oh, tell you. But, um, <laughs> so... He was getting an egg cream. 1988. CD sales surpass vinyl for the first time in history. Between 1988 and 1991, vinyl was nearly driven to extinction by two factors and this was this is something interesting i found and it goes back to something jesse or maybe it was james i don't remember something one of you jay people said earlier <laughs> it was driven by the popularity of cds but also as a calculated move on the behalf of the record companies so part of the death nail here is that record companies noting the popularity and corporate benefits of smaller cheaper to manufacture cds began restricting vinyl returns from shops that may have overordered on records that proved to be unpopular or were bad 
sort of bad bets. And that's where that's where I started to understand it from a comic book perspective because comic book shop owners kind of have to guess how many copies of a certain book yep. that they have to order and direct market sales are non-refundable. And so it's interesting the, the parallels there and I'm so like understanding the, the the dynamics on that level. But this meant that stores were less likely to take risks on vinyl records and were therefore encouraged not to take risks on vinyl records by the labels, by the record companies, because CDs were not only becoming a thing on the fan level, you know, they're sort of sleeker, smaller, it's better sound. I mean, let's just be honest. I know people say... <laughs> I don't want to get into the better sound debate, actually. <laughs> I'm sorry. For those that don't see, I'm doing air quotes when he says that. How about more true to the studio sound? Um, depends on how you <laughs> record it. It depends on how you record it. If you'd ask Jack White, it depends on how you record it. And it depends on the kind of turntable you have, the kind of speakers. It de- there's a lot of factors there. In fact, you know what? I don't want to get into that debate because it's one that I'm going to lose. <laughs> I'm personally of the of the opinion, not, not to just put it all out there, but like, I don't know if they sound better. I don't know if they do, actually. I That's not why I enjoy them. I enjoy the participation aspect of them, mm-hmm. which is what Jack was, was talking about in those quotes from earlier. But regardless you have this thing that sounds quote better uh you have these things that are cheaper to manufacture they're smaller you can fit more in your collection you know they're not quite so hefty or heavy or anything like this and so you see cds become king in that 88 to 91 time frame and interestingly enough that's around the time where they started tallying the sales more accurately Mm -hmm. on albums and pearl jam and I forget mm-hmm. which album it was. Maybe you'll remember, Jesse, held the record for the uh, longest time. Vitology. Vitology from, I think, mm-hmm. 91, held that vinyl sales record for a very, very, very long time. Not because they sold more vinyl records than ever, but simply they were the biggest thing right at the end <laughs> of the yeah. vinyl boom. Uh, so they were the last thing sort of tallied. And we'll get to who broke that record later. But I just, that's the, that's where we are in the history. That's where CDs start going up. It'd be interesting to see where tapes participated in that. I didn't actually find those numbers. Everybody started realizing that tapes sound like crap and they stopped using them. <laughs> yeah. I, Again, I don't know how. I'm going to, I'm going to put up air quotes on that. <laughs> oh, right? shit. I mean, oh, come on, man. You can't listen to a record, a CD, and a cassette tape and tell me that the cassette tape sounds better. You can't. You can't. Depends on the system. Uh, All no. depends on the system. Air quotes fired. But, um, air quotes fired. I just want to put, like, Vitology, the boarding house reach at the time of, yes, very of much. their catalog. Yeah. Got the number one spot is wild to me still. Well, and I think if you would ask longtime Pearl Jam fans, um, Vitology is kind of where they obviously started seeing people like be like, peace out. I'm leaving. Bye. Because Vitology was weird. And it's weird. People didn't care for it. Yeah, bugs. Exactly. (laughs) And people didn't care for it. So they left. And then they put out no code. And no code was Mm. extra weird. And people are like, we're done. And that's when Pearl Jam was like, all right, we're going to do our own thing. But because they came off of Versus, everybody wanted to get that third Pearl Jam record because Mm -hmm. 10 and Versus were just like pristine in every way. So it makes sense that Vitality, in my, just my knowledge of knowing their timeline, it would make sense why Vitality would be one of their biggest selling, even though people were just... Quote, Here we go with the air quotes again. <laughs> air quotes fired. I think air quotes t- fired. I think time has been kind to Vitology. Yes, for sure. 
I've been, you know, people revisit it and, and have since went like, oh, this isn't so weird. This no, is pretty good. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. turn to the 90s and uh, a young jack white is starting to get into music he uh, takes up guitar while working at third man upholstery with his older uh, i guess at the time somebody he was perhaps looking up to figure in his life brian muldoon and brian jack and dominic suhita who would become later dominic davis played as a three-piece band in a sort of informal way and then dominic goes off to college jack and brian formalize their band and call it two-part resin which then evolves into the upholsters this is a trivia question for you two-part resin <laughs> was the original name of the upholsters which i, I didn't know today. that yeah i knew the upholster but i didn't know that i didn't either i found that shit today in a book i was like "Ooh, fun i love finding that stuff it's the joy of this podcast uh <laughs> so jack is listening to primarily cds i would argue at this point and not only just because they're the currency of the day but his cd collection is referenced a few times in those early years Ben Blackwell was quoted as saying, quote, I remember hanging out at his upholstery shop. There was a lot of flat duo jets, love, the cramps, and Frank Black's early solo stuff. Whatever album had Los Angeles and Teenager of the Year on it. of maybe 20 CDs to pick through, so stuff got repeated often. He had, quote, back from the grave stuff. He also had the Johnny Cash box set. The sheer fact that he was broke meant he borrowed everything else from Brian Muldoon. That's that's very funny because that's giving me, me and Paul both worked at a retail store that was a very small Boy Scout store. It had a rotating collection of CDs because no one wanted to. One asked. of them was Rumors. The Rumors we was heard in a there. Lot of rumors, but it was. And then I got in trouble for playing Zep Two on on that because it would play on the floor of the, the scout song. shop, and Lemon Song came on. And I remember my boss. I love the Lemon Song. I but my boss called me into her office one day. And was like, you can't That's have somebody say, "Squeeze my lemon till the juice runs down my leg." <laughs> While somebody's picking out a, a tiger cub book, you can't do that. <laughs> and I was like, "What is Led Zeppelin?" They're like, "You can't do that." Anyway, giving me big scotch. Well, no, it was, anyway. he was giving me flashbacks too. Everybody had that CD collection at our age, anyway, and Jack did too. But it was actually funny, like looking into all this stuff because Jack, you know, sounds like a typical sort of broke but bright and invested young man you know he reminds me a lot of vin tatura friend of mutual friend of ours vin tatura who's was just sort of always broke but 
had this vast musical knowledge based on, you know, his family and things like that. And it, it just, it was, it was giving me a really interesting vibe. Dan John Miller is quoted a lot too. James and I just appeared with on that, uh, that panel that we did, but Dan John Miller added, he was listening to talking about Jack. He was listening to a lot of early blues stuff. I remember him there buying a Tampa red CD around that time. Also, he just really liked that old cartoon with Cab Calloway singing St. James infirmary. That's old jazz stuff. So what I'm getting here is that Jack clearly, I mean, vinyl was still in the mix. You know, we talked about his brothers. We talked about his dad, He's a guy who clearly had some interaction with records, but CDs seem to be the currency for him, too, at least as like a late teenager, early 20s, sort of young man kind of time frame, until Meg gets in the picture. And then that is, the interestingly, the first documented, like, him buying vinyl thing I could find. Now, there may be others out there. Uh, Blackwell, if you get around to listening to this, you can tell me, like, what's actually what. But... Meg White seemed to be a little bit more stable in terms of regular income. And when Jack and Meg were engaged to be married, that's the first reference I could find to vinyl. He's like, give me your money. I want to go buy it. <laughs> Coming back <laughs> that I could find. Some reports have uh, put him and Meg together as early as 1993, which to my understanding, Jack has not himself actually confirmed or denied. But regardless, we're talking mid 90s here. Meg used to shop at a record store called Car City Records at eight and a half and Harper and she and her family used to go in there to buy old, quote, Beatle records. Uh, Greg Basie, magic stick promoter and shopkeep at Car City Records in the mid-90s, recalled Meg one day showing up with a fiancé scouring the record bins who had curly blonde hair and was very tall. <laughs> so we're talking, if it's blonde, he was only blonde for a certain amount of time. Like, that's, we're talking... Very early, like 97, was, 96, 97. Yeah, because like yeah, then he dyed it red, and then after the red was black from that point on until blue. So then we jump to 1998, and Jack has his first vinyl manufacturing experience. So via Billboard, during March of 1998, he sat in on the mastering of the first White Stripes album for Detroit's Italy Records label. Quote from Jack, that was a mind-opening experience because I had no idea about the magical moments about how vinyl was cut or produced in any way. They were just these discs in my home like everybody else's. I couldn't wait to see how this was going to go down. I'd never seen a lathe in my life. We had all kinds of questions and we learned so many things. I still remember this conversation to this day. Anytime we talk about a record, we work on at Third Man in any capacity. So we're talking a couple of years goes by, and he's actually seeing the process of vinyl being created for the first time. Hmm. Now, vinyl is still, for all intents and purposes, dead here, at least in popular culture, although obviously Jack is putting them to, to press. I told the story earlier of finding a $5 copy of Red Rose Speedway in New York City. That's 2003 or 2002, somewhere in that time frame. James, you were probably talking something a little bit later, but Jesse, you're talking, you were talking much later. You're talking more like 2007. So mm -hmm. 2005, vinyl sales show their first sign of growth in however many decades it was, or however many, it was a long time. It was, you know, since, since 88 when CDs overtook them. I can track my record player to 2006 when the Raconteurs 
documents. So there you go. Well, so this would mark a 13 plus year streak of vinyl growth from that point on. So 2005 is where you see it. Now I've seen some articles crediting the kickoff of vinyl and they point more to 2007, but there's a Pitchfork article which cites 2005 as the kickoff according to the Nielsen ratings, which marked vinyl sales on the rise for the first time in 2005. Whichever the case, 2005 is an interesting year because that's really where indie rock, I think, starts to get in gear. You have the garage rock boom. You have all these different things. You have this throwback stuff. We're talking about people like M. Ward, who we mentioned earlier, Jack White, fucking Wolf Mother. These people, their heroes were pressed to vinyl. They are pushing toward vinyl, and it's people being vocal about it that starts to mobilize individual fan bases back toward vinyl that starts to the groundswell again. So that's what I mean by Jack wasn't the guy, but he was one of many people who were looking at the 60s, 70s, in some cases, 80s, and saying, those are my heroes. The music I'm doing, indie rock, sounds like an evolution of that music. All their heroes were cut to vinyl. They start to want to be cut to vinyl, too. That's where you really see the things start to pick up. And then in 2007, Record Store Day. Uh, that is the origin year of Record Store Day. Although I think the first official Record Store Day wasn't until the, the year after 2008. But via the Record Store Day official website, Record Store Day was conceived in 2007 at a gathering of independent record store owners and employees as a way to celebrate and spread the word about the unique culture surrounding the nearly 1,400 independently owned record stores in the U.S. and thousands of similar stores internationally. The first record store day took place on April 19th, 2008. And today, there are record store day participating stores on every continent except Antarctica. Jack, get on that. (laughs) But on the first record store day, Metallica spent hours at Rasputin Music in San Francisco meeting their fans And now each year, hundreds of artists internationally famous and from the block flock to record stores around the world for performances, signings, meet and greets, etc. And uh, yeah, so that is, I would say, one of the bigger... It's such a great idea, Record Store Day. And again, going back to the comic book analogy, we have free comic book day, (laughs) which was started around the same time, which is meant to draw people into stores. And I I can't help but think that these two industries are looking at each other. Oh, 100%. Well, what's funny is this was a a strange time too, because you had older folks say like seeing people buying records going, you fools, why are you doing this? That's a, that's a waste of money. I think dad more or less said that to us. Like, why do you want that? My parents certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, you have the record companies not yet completely gambling on it, 
because you have weird formats popping up everywhere. I remember in 2008, Ringo put his record on USB. Even Icky Thump was on USB. So people were thinking USB like bracelets were might might be the next big thing. <laughs> like it, it was that was a weird time. Like I remember those gambles were happening a lot more. I mean, obviously they were always happening with stuff. I mean, hit clips were a thing. But oh my god, um, <laughs> did I just bring back a wink? Yes, you nostalgia? did. I had one that had to... Britney Spears on one side and NSYNC on the other. And you could listen to thirty seconds of each, the and best. that's great in MIDI yeah, quality. Um, it sounds like a horrible <laughs> Super Nintendo game or whatever. And then you have kids who aren't like in the musical fold yet going like why would you buy physical media at all when streaming service now exists mp3s now exist apple has made it so easy with itunes yeah when ipods were i guess ipods were still huge and the iphone just came out in 2007 so i don't know it's a it's a weird time in music yeah streaming changes the landscape too and it yeah it takes the physical media idea and says okay if you're gonna do that you may as well do it you know don't half-ass it with a cd if you're gonna if you're the type of person who in the world of streaming wants to hold this thing in your hand then why would you shortchange yourself with this little tiny cd when you could get this beautiful album artwork that goes with it and all these extra things i think that's part of it too it segments the Mm -hmm. physical media aspect of music purchase and drives it into a more niche spot. Again, you know, we're talking 2007, 8. One year after the first record store day, Third Man Records opens its storefront in Nashville. Now, we've talked about this a lot on the show, so I'm not going to get into the opening too much. But as we know from talking with Ben Blackwell, it was like, hey, they have all this stuff. They were trying to set up a recording studio, maybe a couple other things. And their intent was simply to offload some stuff they had hanging around. And lo and behold, it evolved from there. This is via Jack, quote, when we first opened the third man store in Nashville, we had a buzzer on the door and we were like, well, a couple of people a week will come by and maybe we'll sell them a 45 or something. It was not in our minds to open a record store. We just wanted to release our vinyl and get it back in print because I'd come into the ownership again. We were very incorrect about that. Hundreds of people were showing up and it hasn't stopped since. We only sell our own records. We don't sell Mariah Carey and Eminem records. We, it's interesting poll, Jack. This is. We only sell the records we produce, and for a record store to succeed with that methodology is very strange. On paper, that should not work, but it has, and it's helped us fund other ideas. So we're just talking about final coming back. We boom. We have record store day. Then suddenly, Jack happens into becoming 
a record store manager <laughs> as well as the other label manager things he's doing. So now Mariah Carey. Yeah, I know it's interesting. Well, it was, 2009 too. It's a pull out Mariah was, Carey. All weird. I want for Christmas is you. Was that out at this point? Oh, uh, it that... had been out. It had okay. been out by this point. And now I'm third man though. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, they, uh, they would hope it should come out on there. Yeah. Um, so in uh, yeah. in 2012, we also get the Rolling Record Store, and Jack, I guess, is surprised by this, but then doubles down on the on the record selling. And in 2013, Jack is named 2013's Record Store Day Ambassador. Mm-hmm. Now, I was expecting him to have been part of the vinyl Illuminati that started Record Store Day to begin with. <laughs> he was not, but he was named Ambassador in 2013. Quote from Jack via the official Record Store Day website. Years ago, someone told me that 1,200 high school kids were given a survey. A question was posed to them. Have you ever been to a standalone record shop? The number of kids that answered yes was zero. Zero? How could that be possible? Then I got realistic and I thought to myself, can you blame them? How can record shops or any other shop for that matter, compete with Netflix, TiVo, T, all right, (laughs) video games that take months to complete, cable, texting, the internet, etc. Wait, a quote from 2012, and he said TiVo? 2013. 2013, that's amazing. Getting out of your chair at home to experience something in the real world has started to become a rare occurrence. And to a lot of people, an unnecessary one. Why go to a bookstore and get a book? You can just download it. Why talk to other human beings? Discuss different (laughs) authors, writing styles, and influences. Just click your mouse. Well, here's what they'll someday learn if they have a soul. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. This is a very aggressive, fucking strongly worded letter here. There's no romance in a mouse click. Take that, Pornhub. (laughs) Suck it. (laughs) There's no beauty. I I promise I'm not just going to dunk on this the whole time, but it is really, really funny. There's no beauty in sitting for hours playing video games. Anyone proud of that? Stop reading now and post your opinion in the nearest forum. All right, I'm signing (laughs) off. The screen of an iPhone is convenient, but it's no comparison to a 70 millimeter showing of a film in a gorgeous theater. The internet is two-dimensional. Helpful and entertaining, but no replacement for face-to-face interaction with a human being, as we all learned uh, last year, especially. Which is exactly what a vinyl record is. But we all know all of that, right? Well, do we? Maybe we all know that, but so what? Let's wake each other up. The world hasn't stopped moving. Out there, People are still talking to each other face-to-face, exchanging ideas and turning each other on. Art houses are showing films. People are drinking coffee and telling tall tales. Women and men are confusing each other, and record stores are selling discs full of soul that you haven't felt yet. So why do we choose to hide in our caves and settle for replication? We know better. We should, at least. We need to re-educate ourselves about human interaction and the difference between downloading a track on a computer and talking to other people in person and getting turned on to music that you can hold in your hands and share with others. The size, shape, smell, texture, and sound of a vinyl record. How do you explain that to a teenager who doesn't know that there's more beautiful music experience than a mouse click? 
You get off your ass, you grab them by the arm, and you take them there. You put the record in their hands. You make them drop the needle on the player. Then they'll know. As Record Store Day Ambassador of 2013, I'm proud to help in any way I can to invigorate whoever will listen to the idea that there is beauty and romance in the act of visiting a record shop and getting turned on to something new that could change the way they look at the world, other people, art, and ultimately themselves. Let's wake each other up, Jack White the Third. I have so many things to say. <laughs> I have so many things. And look, I know we are in the pocket of big, big third man, big Jack. We're in the pocket of big Jack. I may heavily big- edit some of that. <laughs> that's fine <laughs> well let's keep this in context who is he talking to there he's talking to people who would be hearing a press release from record store day so I he's i'm with him in the sense that i like I, that experience that he's describing here james are you a gamer i'm not I'm not, but I'm an animator, and I know that there are some beautifully animated games out there, and they, I can look at that and say, this is a thing of beauty. Well, my husband is a big gamer. Like, how I feel about records is how my husband feels about video games. So I can relate to you on that, because I know that he's made some really great friends through his time doing video games, and yeah, it's a little it's a little aggressive, honey, Jack. It's, it's, it's a little, a little aggressive. aggressive. It is 2013, Jack White. Yeah, he's a little mad. He was a little upset at this Well, he wrote uh, Entitlement in 2013 Mm -hmm. or or thereabouts. So that read like Entitlement to me, which, again, I don't necessarily subscribe to. I guess I'm just of the opinion, like what you said, Jesse, earlier. People can like what they like, even if it's lame Toto like James. But um, I like Toto. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) The truth is coming out. No. Uh, in fact, Toto is an interesting thing. I think I talked about this on the show before. I went to Amoeba Records out here in Los Angeles looking for a Toto best of because I wanted to participate in the act of purchasing a Toto, but I did not feel the need to buy an album. I simply wanted the best of. And I guess if you were to buy the best of Toto, it would simply just be Africa 12 times. <laughs> would it be a Toto? I mean, that's not totally at that point? true. They do have a few really good. Rosanna is my favorite song. Oh, right that's a good one. That was a Scout Shop mix. I so well, well we James, you and I have both seen that song. Live, but I think, Rosanna, that's true. yeah, I think Rosanna is on Toto Four. Good so get Toto Four and you'll be fine. Let me tell you what's ironic about Jack here in this um, quote is that in 2014, so we're still in the vinyls picking up steam thing, and it hasn't stopped, by the way. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Vinyl does not slow down. Vinyl picks up steam. But in 2014, Amazon was actually the largest retailer of vinyl records with a, a, a second place finished by Urban Outfitters which was the largest physical distribution sector for physical records with 8.1% market share. I think Amazon was something like 12 or 14% or something. But again, 
we're talking about something, and I'm going to get into this more as we go along. We're talking about something that still represents a relatively small yeah, portion sure. of the music business. And and there's I have some more figures as we go later on there. But so we're at we're 2013, Jack's ambassadoring record store day. He's getting really aggressive with it. 2014, you know, people are still buying this stuff. Jack obviously lands huge with Lazaretto. 2014, I mean, that was a huge year. That he was a that was a record-breaking year for Jack because Lazaretto surpassed the Pearl Jam Vitology record that year and became the biggest-selling vinyl record ever because Jack put all his shit on it. And it was awesome. And everybody bought in because it's cool, you know? <laughs> he really yeah, zeroed cool in object, and yeah. understood that we're buying these things because they're cool. And so he was like, what other cool shit can we put on this? And that's exactly – he intuited exactly what he needed to intuit to get that done. It's also curious you said the Urban Outfitters thing because I'm wondering if that's why they made the Urban Outfitter exclusive to style. Oh. Was it was it to style? I remember they, what I you're talking about. I don't remember what it was. But. Yeah, but it was like a, a colored vinyl exclusive to Urban Outfitters, and I'm wondering if there's still such a big impact in the Oh, I the can numbers. speak on that. Please, yeah. please do. Oh, please do, yeah. Um. So basically every single major what I call box store is jumping on that bandwagon. So Urban Outfitters makes exclusives. Amazon makes exclusives. Walmart makes exclusives. Target, Barnes and Noble. In the past six months, I have noticed it really take a toll on not take a toll sounds really dark. It's not ruining my business. But what I've noticed is that they are, clinging to that Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. they don't want to relinquish any sort of domination over that so they're impeding on record store day and making color variants of everything so record store day is having to figure out how can we make stuff that people are still going to want to come out that's going to make the independent record store look great when you can pre-order a record Like Olivia Rodrigo just put out Sour this year. She put color variants in all the major box stores, but the record stores got just black wax. It took me – I just sold my last copy of it the other day, and I had four copies in the store. It's not like I had much. Because people come, oh, I want the purple one. I'm going to go over to Walmart and get the purple one. And it's become a really weird thing. That is weird. I bought that album on cassette. (laughs) <laughs> did you really that's true i did he did yeah what? me and paul were kind of used to that with mccartney's new yeah that he had so many had, variants on that yeah. but mccartney has a weird thing like unlike olivia in that he has a built-in collector base who will get it oh, from absolutely every place yes so any beetle collector will buy every variant they can find <laughs> it's yeah. a sickness really it is a sickness and a curse but I mentioned buying Olivia Rodrigo's Sour on cassette. I, I bought it from her website directly. But in my case with cassettes, that's been interesting because I was a holdout on cassettes for a long day. And then they said the cassette store day or whatever. I was like, I was one of those people looking at that and going, why? Why on earth? Why on earth would you do that? But now where I've landed on it is my vinyl collection has gotten to the point where <laughs> I may want to interact with something physically, but I'm actually looking for a lower stakes, lower cost. Uh, the price point on the cassette is still whatever it is, 
six, seven, eight bucks, something. It's not, it's, it's less than actually a digital download of the thing in some cases. And so if I still want to interact with it, the lower stakes version is the cassette. And so there are, for me, there are tiers of fandom. If I'm very much invested, interested in the artist, I'm getting the vinyl. If I'm a super fan, Annie, McCartney, Jack, any of these people, I'm getting the big bucks. I'm buying whatever. You give me whatever, 200 I'm going to throw the money at it. But then if I'm like a fan, not a huge fan, but a fan, I may go for the cassette. It's where I got Japanese breakfast. Olivia Rodrigo, as I mentioned, a couple other things. And then if I'm sampling, I'm doing digital. So that's my buying habits. I have separated hmm. it out into tiers. So and then, CD doesn't fall anywhere into your category. CD doesn't, although oddly enough, when Taylor Swift announced the um, re-release, the Taylor's version of Red, that's the first actual CD purchase I made for myself in years. And it was simply just to, because of the authenticity of the interaction with it. That was it. See, I'm, I'm the opposite. opposite. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not opposite, but interchange CDs for cassette tapes for yeah. me. So you're still picking up a CD at a certain juncture. For one thing, I'm not really t- typically buying brand new music. Yeah. If it's like, let's use, okay, like Willow Smith. Have you listened to her new record? Mm-mm, I've heard Do it. It's yeah, balls. Yeah, it's amazing. It's my favorite record of the year so far. I sampled it digitally because I use Spotify religiously. And I loved it, loved it, loved it, bought it on vinyl. Like, I was just like, okay, I need this. I need this. So pretty much, it has to be a pretty large gap for me to not buy it on vinyl and only buy it on another format. Um, But for me, I'm trying to think of how I can properly describe my habit. So I need everything on vinyl. Everything. I, that's just how I buy my my media. If I love the album, I want it on record. I don't care what artist it is. I don't care what level it is. Like if I really enjoyed the record, or if I really love the artist, I'm getting it on vinyl. CD. I'm gonna buy CD stuff. So like I have Jack's whole discography on CD and on vinyl, and as much as I can get on cassette tape because I'm that person. <laughs> but I also love to buy CDs from bands that they haven't really put out any reissue of their music. So the only way I can really gather it is by using CD. I could go the cassette tape route, but I don't like cassette tapes. So I go CD route. And then if it's like casual music, then I just stream it. If that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. It makes Mm -hmm. a lot of sense. I get CDs to listen to in the car for the sole purpose that I, I have Spotify premium. Like there's no reason I shouldn't be using that. But except for playing music while driving, I there is no way I I don't look at my phone while I'm driving so growing up when we did I'm a master of opening a CD case and putting it like taking a disc out and putting a new disc in without ever looking at a thing and like knowing how to do that so like it's and having the music already like I I know that this is going to be an hour long and I can listen (laughs) to this hour long thing so it's a matter of convenience I think CDs for me whereas like Spotify or something I need to make sure i'm already starting it before i leave on my journey and i am not that thorough of a planner so that's where we differ and that's where i differ from you jesse you you mentioned swapping tapes out for cd i would swap streaming out for mp3 and wave and digital files i still like a weirdo like a weird man don't really use spotify like ever i don't stream what i do is i 
I do that Jack thing where I follow the music journals and then religiously keep an eye on new stuff and try to absorb recommendations from other people in like different online groups and try to amass it on my own, like basically do my own aggregation because wow. and it's, it's a stupid, it's a stupid thing, but it, for me, it's more like a hobby. It's just like more like that's how that's, that's a way for me to interact with digital music. And then I'll either find it, buy it. I will obtain the digital files. And then that sets into motion the different gears of buying, which not like I'm not dumping a lot of money into the record industry. I was an iTunes fanatic. I, yeah. I mean, there was a time in my life where like, yeah, I was on iTunes multiple times a week buying things or sampling things or, you know, the thing that I love about Spotify is that I can explore music that I never would have had contact with probably if I hadn't found it on Spotify. Yeah. And so like, for example, end of last year, beginning of this year, I was really bored with my music and I decided to give myself a crash course on jazz I'm obsessed with jazz now. Like, I <laughs> absolutely love jazz. But if it hadn't been for Spotify, I would have... jazzed. Huh? I sound jazzed. I am. I'm jazzed yeah, about sorry. jazz. Sorry. Um, sorry. Sorry. So sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Um, if it hadn't been for Spotify, where I could just go and, like, bulk, not even have to commit to buying anything, but I can just like it and it puts it in a library, I can go listen to it. I'm like, okay, I like this. I don't like this. Then I can start saying, okay, well, these are the ones that I like. Let me go find physical copies of them and add them to my collection. So it to me, it's like with iTunes was that I never felt like I could really explore new stuff the way that I can when I use Spotify, hmm. if that makes sense. No, it's and I think you're doing it the right way. I mean, not that this is the right <laughs> wrong way, but like I, I look at what you're doing and say, yeah, that's probably what I should be doing too. But for some reason, for me, it's part like the hunt is part of it. It's like, oh, no, 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 that's part to- of it. I hate to break it to you. You are doing that just through a third party. I know. I know. Yeah. Every recommendation you're getting is probably somebody who heard it from Spotify. But there's something about or... – no, not – well, maybe, 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 maybe. I guess if for me, it's tailored – for me, I'm doing my own aggregation. I'm tailoring it more toward – Swift. There's something about finding an artist – through recommendation. So are you telling me that you're still using I like I actual iTunes? I religiously make playlists. Like James, you were talking about like I you, like you put a CD on in the car. Like I spend a ridiculous like John Cusack amount of time crafting playlists for myself and arranging things in very specific ways. And my playlists have a certain tier where they get to a certain length, and then I have to do the new one, and then I have monthly playlists. I I do a lot of file arranging. And it for me, I know it sounds like stupid, but like for me, it's it's my way of interacting with digital music in a way that is not yeah. simply given to me. I recount this story a lot, but there was like a time where I was walking past the coworker's desk and he was listening to Temporary Secretary by Paul McCartney. And my reaction was, where did you find that? That doesn't belong to you. Who gave that to you? It's like, you didn't earn that. You didn't find that. Spotify gave that to you. You didn't, you didn't suffer and plead for that song. And yeah, you you watching TiVo at home? Yeah. You yeah, TiVo you motherfucker, no soul. you soulless TiVo hack. <laughs> Look, I'm saying all of this saying it's not the thing anyone should do. I'm simply saying it's what I'm doing. 
Well, it's the, his weird habit. The, it's his weird habit. You don't do the doomsday prepper thing that I do, uh, in which is another reason I buy CDs of wanting the MP3 of the song just in case just in I case. don't have internet. And like it'll be mine. Like if you download it from iTunes, you don't technically have the full rights to yeah. that. iTunes could always take it back. I, I mean, the CD you have technically you don't have the full rights to anything really. You have the right to a piece of plastic, but um, yeah. like it's it's. I just want the access to it. That's, well, that's why I still buy uh, movies. Yeah. I mean, I don't buy them that's as true. much as I used to, but like I have a pretty large movie collection, and I I'll tell my husband like I need to buy that, and he's like, why? You can just. I'm like, because what if, what if we don't have access <laughs> yeah. to Netflix and I can't watch New Girl anymore? Like, and, and I guess have what? to have them. My in-laws, uh, they're they have a an empty lot next to them, and someone decided to to buy it and build a house on it because it's 2021 I guess and everyone's buying as much property as they can get but uh, they severed the cable line when they started the foundation and they didn't have internet for a full week and so they were like our DVD collection has dwindled we all have only so much left can you donate any DVDs to us and I'm like yes but this yeah. is this is my time to shine my internet went out for like a day and I was like oh it's like pioneer times I'm watching the office season 6 set here look at this yeah oh, look at what did jim and pam up to better crack open this old case here uh interestingly the way i feel about music has not translated into my movie buying habits because i was an avid movie buyer and now i will only buy physical on a movie if it's like something jack or beatles or something like that i'm hyper into i think that's just a shelf space thing like i have to be of a certain level of obsession on something before i'm buying it i love like going to well like we have a record store in tampa that they have a huge used movie collection i like buying movies like that like i love going to goodwill and buying movies for two dollars it is my absolute favorite thing in the world (laughs) so most of my i mean i'll buy like my like my tv series like i want those brand new because you know i want to make sure i have all of them or whatever and they're harder to find and usually more expensive. But like movies, I'll go to Goodwill and be like, oh, I've always wanted to see that movie. Bye. It's $2. Why not? Right? <laughs> so that's how I accumulate a lot of my movies is like yeah. that. We evangelize Princeton Record Exchange quite often in that they had a, a collection of just thousands yeah. of DVDs and they're all like a dollar. And you could really just amass a huge collection that way. But it became a, a footprint thing, which is another reason why tapes never made it in. They're, they're still not making it into my house is because tapes have a larger footprint eventually than vinyl. Like vinyl are thin and they're heavy. Though. Can, you ever try and lift heavy. a box of that shit? Jesse knows. She's been lifting that times. shit all day. That yeah. shit is heavy as hell. <laughs> it is. is it is. But I will tell you right now, even with CDs, like. Anytime that I, let's say I buy a collection of records off of someone and then I buy a collection of CDs off someone, I hurt more, my hands are more gross, and it's more difficult to store CDs than it is to store records. Yeah. Like it, there's just something about all that plastic that they use on tapes, that they use on CDs. It just... You think it's smaller and you think it's more compact. You think it's going to be easier. And it's not always the case. Yeah. My hands are always black after I touch a bunch of used CDs. It's gross. You also want to see the, the what you're going to pick. Like you want to look at your collection and be able to pick out a thing. So if you have a deep shelf 
and you put one tape there, it's like, well, now I have like a foot of shelf that I'm just <laughs> not utilizing. I have, I actually have my tape collection right here because there's only like 30 of them and they're mm-hmm. like three deep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So storage for me, the plastic cases just kind of add up in, in shelf space. Anyway, we're, we've yeah. gone far. Yeah, we were off on a tangent. Off. Let's revisit the timeline here because we're almost through with the timeline. But in 2015, uh, an interesting pivotal moment happens in the vinyl resurgence, which is related to something that, again, the comic book industry is going through right now, which is a supply chain problem. Mm. So We're, we're going talk- through that, too. <laughs> So we're talking 10 years now since vinyl's rising, rising, rising 10 years. This is via Pitchfork in 2015. Not long ago, supply problems looked like they might end up hobbling the vinyl resurgence despite fervent demand. Around 2015, backlogs at pressing plants could routinely take six months or more. For smaller labels, that was a long time with their payment locked up and no product to show for it. As recently as 2016, Billboard reported that, quote, no one makes vinyl presses anymore. Now, I remember this happening when I was trying to buy that new Janelle Monet album that came out a few years ago, and the vinyl pressing was had taken, was taken a month. It almost took a full calendar year from when the thing was released to actually being able to pick up the vinyl. Tell me about Dirty Computer? Yes. So, yeah, this is going back a little while. But over the past couple of years, this is going back to the Pitchfork article, a handful of enterprising companies, New Built, Viral Technologies, and Phoenix Alpha have indeed begun manufacturing new vinyl presses. Most prominently, New Built's machines have been called into action at Third Man's Records' recently opened Detroit pressing plant. So here's the thing. Vinyl starts coming back, and then we suddenly get to a point where the demand is so high and the technology is so outdated, you can't actually make the copies to meet the demand. So it is no coincidence that not long after this, Third Man Pressing opens up. Because it's a Mad Max world. Everyone's looking mm-hmm. for gasoline and there's only so much. Right. Well, Jack, yep. Jack identifies this as a problem that needs fixing. So what does he do? He gets his hands dirty and gets in there makes and himself. makes it his own damn self. <laughs> so that's interesting because I never quite connected third man pressings necessity of opening to a supply chain problem. But it does spark a lot of different vinyl pressing plants opening at the same time around there. So we get here in 2016, the Record Industry Association of America noted a new height for vinyl. In its shipment and revenue statistics report for 2016, the Record Industry Association of America noted that shipments of vinyl were up 4% to $430 million and comprised 26% of total physical shipments at retail value, their highest share since 1985. So since night, the year I was born, the year of our Lord, the year of our CD, 1985, <laughs> vinyl has finally started to chip away at CDs, which is really, really far out because that continues. And we'll, we'll see how it slides further as we go. 2017, the same year Jack White opens up Third Man Pressing, Sony Music announces its first in-house vinyl manufacturing and uh, since 1989. And they did this a few months after it equipped its Tokyo studio with a cutting lathe used to produce master discs needed for manufacturing vinyl records. But the company is even struggling to find older engineers who know how to make records. So Jack is also in the unique position of having learned how to do this when he was in his Mm -hmm. early 20s. And 
is again aggressively interested in doing this and so he finds himself on the forefront yet again and that brings us to the third man pressing plant opening well, if i was going to pick one place it was going to be detroit and this neighborhood of cast corner jack white's latest business move has him closer to his roots than ever before you've seen him on stage but now He's bringing something different to his hometown. And we're not talking about the Third Man Records storefront. No, Jack White is bringing the entire operation to our backyard. The vinyl itself, molded, pressed, and cut here. The dream was to be able to have a plant that people could see records being pressed and you could buy those records immediately that are, that are on the machines you're looking at, which is, doesn't exist anywhere in the world. He's hired roughly 50 people to do this, from the presses to inspections and packaging. Uh, White oversees it all. He even hired an artist from the Cass Corridor to paint this mural, because this isn't like other vinyl pressing factories, dark and dank. No, this is meant to be living, breathing art, something different than White's music that will be printed here, but he tells me it's still straight from his soul. Whatever we can think of that we wanted to see when we were younger on tour in the van, uh, places we wanted to visit, things we assumed existed in the world that didn't, you know, from an old recording booth in the 40s where you can make your own record, to be a, a small bedroom punk label and looking for a place to press your record here in Detroit. So soon the stock that you see right here won't be things they've shipped in from out of town. In fact, it'll be the exact same yellow records you saw being shipped there. And the cool thing is, is that they got a curtain back here. They're going to lift that up come Saturday. And when you come to the store, you can walk right back there and you can take a look. Eventually, there will even be tours. I knew I should not have given up my record player. Yeah. I, I yeah. thought I was embracing the new technology right. and everything else. Hey, Matt, which records are they pressing on Saturday? This is via the Detroit Free Press. Third Man Pressing, with its typically artful, whimsical Jack White touch, is the first record plant to open here, in Detroit they mean, since Archer Record Pressing in 1965. Mm -hmm. And it makes Detroit one of the few places in the world with multiple pressing facilities. Ben Blackwell said people can watch a record being made, then turn around instantly and buy that record. As far as we can tell, this is probably the only place where that's even happening in the world. So we are 2017, 12 years into the vinyl boom, and Third Man has gone, put their chips in the right spot, really. Like Jack's all that yelling at clouds and stuff that Jack was doing back in 2013, he had at that time correctly identified where things were going at the very least on that hyper fan microcosm level. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the last thing here in 2017 is an association called making vinyl names. Jack white is a keynote speaker. And I pulled a lot of clips from, uh, from this speech that Jack gave uh, for this research. But um, basically uh, Jack gave a conference of making vinyl uh, is composed of experts icons and industry legends that are passionate about the vinyl record industry and they hold this convention to talk about it and exchange ideas and yada 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 jack was quoted from his speech saying last week i saw a tv show i'm watching and there's a commercial for an insurance company someone drops a needle on a vinyl record five minutes later there's a commercial for some drug company and there's somebody dropping a needle on a vinyl record 
My kids are watching. The Price is Right, and they're giving away a turntable on The Price is Right in 2017. We should all in this room be proud of that. That's a big deal. It's almost an avant-garde thing on its own. So, again, we... Now, if he had TiVo, he could skip that. <laughs> That's right. That's Listen, right. We, we had some fun at old Jackie Boy's Ba-do-ba-do. expense earlier. <laughs> but you know what? He's right. People screaming about this stuff actually started to change the way their fan bases and therefore people and how they participated in music. And that is really like the point in which I say that Jack White is kind of at the forefront of all this is because he's certainly one of the loudest voices in the room when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. 2018 was a hallmark year for Jack and vinyl boarding house reach topped early 2018 records for vinyl records sold. I mean, boarding house reach was, had maybe mixed reaction from the fan base, but the vinyl buy-in on that was huge. Via the Tennessean, if the resurgence of vinyl is a fad, it's the kind of fad that has lasted for longer than a decade and shows no signs of slowing down. According to Nielsen Music, vinyl album sales were up 19.2% in the first six months of 2018 compared to the first six months of 2017. So as these years go by, this stuff continues to pick up steam. Like It's not slowing down. It's getting more substantial as it goes. From December 29th, 2017 through June 28th, 2018, 7.6 million vinyl albums were sold, Billboard reports. And no artist has sold more copies of a single album up to that point than Jack White. Eighteen's uh, best-selling Boarding House Reach album sold 37,000 copies upon its initial release. And I think he was outsold later in that year, but he was trailed by Kendrick Lamar's Damn at 30,000 and the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack, which I think wound up eclipsing Jack that year. That one was really big. And then Michael Jackson's Thriller, okay? And Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, each with 28,000. Um, via Forbes, as is the case whenever he releases a new album, Jack has topped the all-genre Billboard 200 with his latest Boarding House Reach, which kicks off with a respectable 124,000 equivalent units shifted in its first full frame of availability. Only 3,000 of those weren't sales of the full record. They came from streaming and people purchasing a few tracks here and there and a large percentage of his first week sales were vinyl and um you know there's a lot more to go on that but the long story short is that jack's albums continue to be at the forefront of these uh surges in vinyl and and may actually i mean i don't know correlation isn't causation but may actually be helping fuel the fire of the vinyl beast i think i'm mixing metaphors there but you gather what i mean it's important as i mentioned earlier to put this vinyl surge in context this is again we're still in 2018 here vinyl represents an infinitesimal slice of the 16 billion dollar recording industry globally even within the shrinking realm of physical media only one in 10 new albums sold last year meaning 2017 was on vinyl according to one industry report 
Aside from negligible smattering of cassettes, the other nine were CDs. Yet the numbers and observations from industry insiders suggest that physical records will probably continue to remain a meaningful and lasting presence in many music lovers' eyes. In the years ahead, vinyl will likely maintain its status as a complement to the impersonality of streaming, a scruffy anachronism consistently hanging out in the margins. Jack White, a scruffy anachronism hanging out in the margins. <laughs> Jack and vinyl. Yeah. Perfect. Sounds enough. about right. In 2019, vinyl closes in on CDs. Rolling Stone said vinyl records earned 224.1 million on 8.6 million units in the first half of 2019, which is closing in on the 247.9 million generated by CD sales. So first, it was just like, oh, vinyl's ticking up when CDs aren't moving. And now it's like, oh, shit. By 2019, vinyl is getting really close to the actual dollars and cents that CDs are making. And that is huge. Vinyl revenue grew by 12.8% in the second half of 2018 and 12.9% in the first six months of 2019. This is remarkable growth. We don't see this kind of growth even in comics. Like this stuff happens on a five-year, six-year cycle. We're talking 2019. That's 14 years after vinyl started ticking up. That's crazy. People are really like, it shows that it may have started as a niche thing, but it's catching on by 2019, certainly. Strange that CDs are even as popular as they are. Based on everything my friends have told me when they are aghast that I bought a new one. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah, in 2019, that's the other thing here. 2019, Best Buy discontinued CDs. But as of January 2020 still sells vinyl target and walmart still sell cds but use less shelf space for them and more space for vinyl records players and accessories and that brings us to 2020 the year everybody universally loves where vinyl surpasses cds in dollars for the first time via the guardian in the first half of 2020, vinyl recordings outsold CDs in terms of revenue in the U.S. for the first time since the 1980s. In 2020, vinyl records accounted for only 5.1% of the total music revenues and CDs accounted for. Digital and streaming formats accounted for the remainder of the $12.2 billion in U.S. music revenues, with paid subscriptions accounting for 57.7% of total revenue at 7 billion so 2020 vinyl was closing in on cds for a while 2020 it overtakes cds and in 2021 continues and taylor swift breaks jack white's lazaretto record for selling 102,000 vinyl lps in a single week in june 2021 breaking jack's record they think she did it but they just can't prove she thinks I did it, but she just can't prove. As per the MRC data, mid-year report for 2021 sales of vinyl records in the U.S. surpassed that of CDs. 19.2 million albums were sold in the first six months of 2021, outpacing the 18.9 million CDs sold. So this is the gap is widening. Vinyl is it was it was like a squeaker there, and then vinyl surpasses it, and the gap is only getting wider. Now, Jesse, in your store, how has shelf space been 
has it been shrinking in any particular zone? Are you going more in one direction or the other? Or what do you mean, like with like new releases or? Yeah, in regards to anything new coming out, are you are you shrinking your your CD growth? At oh, all? absolutely still- not. No, yeah. our CD sales have now. We only sell used CDs, but okay. our CD sales have doubled in the past year. Really. I sold more CDs today at that punk rock flea market than I did records today. Wow. I mean, that's that's impressive. It's wild. I mean, it's just, it's so unpredictable. And I think a lot of younger kids are getting into cassettes and CDs because they're cheaper. That's a subject that the vinyl industry may want to tiptoe around because they keep jacking up the prices mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. keep... Like, I have a bone to pick with Taylor Swift. For one thing, I'm not a fan. Sorry. Second thing, um, she released her new Folklore Evermore stuff to all the box stores and not to indie Mm. record stores for, like, six months. And so I still have, like, six copies of Folklore sitting in my store because people have already bought it. So that's the kind of crap that I – that's really starting to get annoying is that – all these artists want to like get on the vinyl trend, but they are not doing it in a way that's supportive to the people that have been pushing vinyl before Target and Walmart decided to get on the gravy train. Yeah. But I think a lot of kids just, they want something physical in their hands. And because the record industry is booming so much, they can charge $45 for a single LP, Yeah. but they can charge 10 bucks for a CD. You know what I mean? So it's like, Hmm. but because Target and Walmart and Best Buy aren't selling CDs as much anymore, they're coming to places like me and buying things secondhand. Yeah, there's there's an artist disconnect there. But I think the bigger labels are coming around or at the very least, hopefully learning their lessons there. Because I know Billie Eilish had a few record store exclusives. Oh, and that was a nightmare. That was a nightmare. The exclusives for the for the Billy stuff? Yeah. What in what way? I'm I'm interested. Because basically forty eight hours before we were supposed to get them, she and her people, whoever, I don't know if it was just her, but it was her people, pulled it from us from like the majority of the indie stores. So like only the people mm-hmm. that bought like hundreds of copies. So like Amoeba, Park Avenue here in Florida, some of the bigger places in Texas, they all got the indie colored variants and yeah. we got we did not. And that was like 48 hours before the release. They decided that because it was this whole big debacle. Is this an artist thing or is this a label? Thing? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. This sounds like could have been a the, supply the, chain the, problem the, too, possibly. I know. I guess. Well, basic. Also... We still got copies. We just got black wax oh. copies. Ah, uh, okay. Huh. So I don't know if there was a disconnect in, uh, in supply in distribution, whether it was she wanted it to be super exclusive and she decided last minute. The way that my reps made it seem is that her like her team decided last minute that this is how they wanted to do it. So I don't know. And that's part of it that I don't see, you know, yeah. from my perspective. But it, it was a nightmare. And like the thing with Olivia Rodrigo, it's like they're causing more problems because they keep everybody wants to get their hand in the pot. Yeah. And they see how much this is growing. And that's why for me, like when you go into my store, I mean, I have a decent selection of new stuff, but 
use stuff is where it is at. If you're yeah. wanting to get involved as far as being someone that sells records, like used albums, one, are going to be much more supply demand, easier to grab, but two, you're going to make more money that way. Yeah. Um, because I know too, like when I buy a new record, I'm making five bucks off of a new release. I'm making 15 bucks off of that Zeppelin four that I paid, you know, let me ask you this. So when you're ordering new content and this is what I was going to, cause I'm done with my timeline. My timeline's over. Uh, it was awesome. but, uh, thank you. Uh, <laughs> but what, how does that process go? Do you have to guess? Like, is it, is yep. it on you? You have to mm-hmm. kind of guess who your customer base is and what they're going to yep. want and make. And so is it, are they returnable? Are, have we gone to the place? So the way that we work it, we cannot return them to the distributor. Um, it's it's final sale. Now, if it comes to us defective, like there have been yeah, times that I've gotten something before I've even put on the shelf and it's, I can tell it's warped or it's ripped or it's torn or whatever. They'll give us cre- like store credit basically. So we usually don't have to send them back, but they will give us a credit back on those items. But when we're dealing with a customer, I basically tell people, if you want to return it to us, do not open it. Yeah. I tell them the the moment you undo that saran wrap around it, it devalues immediately. Yeah. Anything sealed is going to hold more value. So I tell people, especially on like Christmas, because people are buying gifts and they're not sure if their friend or family member has a record, I'll tell them like, maybe just keep your receipt on hand. And when the person opens it, say, now, if you already have this, keep it sealed and I'll return it and get you something new. And we don't typically have an issue with that. People are like, oh, okay. And then that's usually fine. But we do that because we don't get to send them back. Yeah. Which means we lose our money, period. If you return it, we don't have a way to make anything. But we can sell it used, I guess, but we're not going to get our money back. Right. I actually had a question for you. Do you get a list from like labels? Like, let's say, does Atlantic send you, here's all the releases coming out Friday. Are, are you, how does that work? Like, So you ha- you can go about it different ways. A lot of stores that are bigger, going back to the Amoeba, the Park Avenues, the you know places in Manhattan, places in Texas, you can actually get direct contacts with the labels and you can actually buy your records directly from them. Yeah. Um, the way that most record label or uh, record stores work is they, they work with, distribution centers so alliance all media supply urp which is based out of nashville and they're the go-betweens so urp actually has their own record press and i think ams might as well i'm not 100 sure on that so basically what happens is i have a rep that sends me hey look this person's coming out with a new record here's the pre-order for it and i pre-order it Or a lot of times I usually try to pre-order like staple, what I think are going to be staple new releases like a month ahead. So I'll go onto their website. I'll look up what's coming out next month. I'll go, okay, I want, I think I need this one, this one, this one, this one. Yeah. order it you know whatever like a like a new foo, foo fighters record or something like something right, you know exactly is move yeah. right or like the the billy elish i mean i pre-ordered the billy elish like three or four months in advance because i yeah. knew that people were gonna want it and i didn't really have as much of an issue with selling the billy elish as i did like the olivia rodrigo because billy didn't do a whole bunch of like box store exclusives. She just randomly decided to like make her variant very, very rare. Yeah. 
And so that wasn't as much of an issue. Um, but like the Olivia Rodrigo, I had them laying around and I'm like, I, I didn't understand at first. Cause I was like, this is one of the biggest selling albums of the year. I know it is. Why do I still have, I thought they would fly off the shelves. I, at first I was yeah. like, I should have bought more than what I did. Well, then I learned that Walmart has a purple variant and Target has a tricolored variant and Urban Outfitters has a clear variant. And I'm just like, here's the reason why I'm not selling these records. Right. So, you know, it's all very weird. Hmm. And since COVID, they've had horrible distribution problems, like horrible distribution problems. Yeah, the trucks, there's the, there's literally a driver shortage uh, yeah. of people to literally drive this shit places. Like it's, it's So wild. it's I'm, just like... You know, like we had a hiccup with Iron Maiden dropped a new album like three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And they everybody, not just small stores, but everybody got them late because they were delayed. Who knows why? But I ran into a Suez Canal problem because the stuff coming from a record label in Germany was locked up in the Suez Canal for a while. (laughs) And I was like, oh. Well, I was getting a regular updates. Like, <laughs> we think this will be next week. Never mind, it's the following be, week. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got it like a, like a month ago, and I ordered it I, for like April. And it was it's been it's been a while. It it, it was hey, it was nuts. Hey, y'all, but um, y'all want to play a game to end? Oh Lord, uh, I'm I really do, bad I, at games, but sure. We're gonna play a game to okay. end the show. This is gonna okay. this is a good game to end the show. I'm going to tell you what the top vinyl LP sellers were every year since 2008. But before I say it, you have to guess what you think it is. So, so 2008 to now. Yeah. So in okay. 2008, what do you think was the highest oh, selling gosh. LP? I'm talking out vinyl record. 2008. And James, you cannot look at the notes document. Well, I had already scrolled down, so I'm going to actually recuse myself. From this. Oh gosh, so it's I, just me? Because you remember? You. I don't remember any do you, of the facts. Do you know but what I, I was like listening I... to in 2008? <laughs> what? I was like I... fangirling over the Jonas Brothers in 2008. I didn't. I did not have good sense of taste in 2008. Um, I was listening to a lot of Smashing Pumpkins and Stone Temple Pilots. I should have been. I mean, I do love the Jonas Brothers, but still. Um, God, I don't want to play this game alone. Just tell me. James, guess. I, all right, because I don't remember any of the stuff that was on the list, but I feel like if I get yeah, it right, okay. then... Yes. All right, uh, so 2008. Um, Wait, didn't Icky Thump come out? No. No, so seven. Um, you can also just say pass. Like, it's not pass. that yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to say, like, if this was 2006, I would say Gnarls Barkley. Maybe their, se- their, their sequel album that came out and no one bought. In Rainbows by Radiohead. No kidding. Ooh. In 2008, that's cool. And it sold that makes 25, eight, so 25,800 copies. Uh, I got the free copy that they gave me in MP3. Yes. How, how about 2009? That was a high. Oh, Lord. God, was I, how much music was I buying in 2009, though? That, that was new. See, that's another uh, thing is, like, I was listening to a lot of old music, too. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be Oh, new. okay, I it never, doesn't have to be new This release. is the top-selling okay, okay. LP. Okay, then and, and, my go-to you know, is now going to be Rumors by Fleetwood Mac. Is that your guess? Yeah. That's my go-to. If I don't know it, I'm going to say that. Abbey Road. Oh, that's, that's a good one. 34,000. All right. Note, their numbers are getting higher. How about 2010? 
I'll give you a hint. It's also Abbey Road. How about 2011? <laughs> Is it Abbey Road? That, it's Abbey Road it's again. Abbey Road. Is Three it really? years in a row, it was the top seller. And uh, it in two, 2011 moved 41,000 cups. So now you're noticing the number one spot has almost doubled in the span of four years. So that shows you the market. That's crazy. Growing. How about 2012? Did Blunderbuss come out that year? Is that your guess? Yes. I'm going with it. That yeah, because I feel like correct. Okay, Blunderbuss was the top Look, selling. Look, we got one right! Yay! I mean, I still feel bad because, like, at some point, maybe this information. <laughs> no, no, no! It's it's uh, it moved thirty four thousand. It actually shrunk a little bit there, but that's the that's one of the few times that that actually happens. But yeah, Jack was top there, twenty thirteen. Okay, I was buying new music at this point in my life. What was I buying? <laughs> I guess if Abbey Road still... Is it Abbey Road? <laughs> it wasn't Babble by Mumford & Sons, was it? Random Access Memories by Daft Punk. I should have oh, known okay. that. Yeah, that. Just makes, from my job sense. right now, I should have known that. 49,000 copies. Uh, how about 2014? Wait, wasn't that we know this. We, we know this one, yes. Lazaretto, Lazaretto. It's number one. Be. Came in at 87,000. How about 2015? I'll give you a hint. Heavy Road again. This is an artist that almost appeared on Third Man Records. Uh, I'll give you another hint since it sounds like that didn't help. This person was going to be the kickoff to the Blue Series and declined. Oh, crap. I don't know this. Uh, Y'all know I way know more this. trivia like that than I do. <laughs> All right, Paul, just say it. I'm Adele. not going to kick around here. Adele. That's Adele. Right. No kidding. She was going to be in the Blue Series? They asked her to do she, it the first one. Why she did she decline? She did Many Shades of Black instead. She covered that song, but she was like, she was big with the, with, with in the Jack White crew at the time. So, uh, yeah, that, that sold 116,000 copies. How about twenty? Was that wait? That was Adele, twenty-one, Adele. right? Adele's twenty-five, yeah. Twenty-five, okay. Twenty-sixteen. If you uh, want some acoustic hints, recordings, I can tell you. what James? Acoustic recordings. Jack Jesse, White. Are you gonna go with that, James? Uh, two thousand sixteen. Two thousand sixteen. Sorry, the full title is Jack White's acoustic <laughs> recordings. Yeah, 1998 I, I to 2016. Fleetwood Mac rumors. I don't know. I'm a black star. Fifty-four thousand copies. That's a great record. It's such a good record. I love it. I love it's it. It's favorite. sad. It's, it's <laughs> Did a, you say it's, it's not a, your favorite? <laughs> yeah, I, I prefer Ziggy. I like. I like uh, it. My favorite's Young sad. Americans. Young that's Americans the is good. Hunky Dory and Young Americans. That's the. Shit. Those are my two faves. Yeah, my two. Oh, actually, no, it's just a little wait, 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 sad. Hold on. Uh, what's the one from the 80s with Let's Dance on it? I Let's love that Dance, one. that's the name of the album? That's the one. I like that <laughs> one a lot. The one with China Girl. I love that. Yeah. 2017. I'll give you a hint. This is a legacy artist. It's Abbey Road again, isn't it? Is that your guess? Sure. We're Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts ah. Club. The Beatles show up on this list like a lot. Uh, that was 72,000 That's copies. my favorite Beatles record. That's a wonderful record. We have 2018. And I'll, I'll give you a hint. I spoiled this earlier when I, when I accidentally said what the top seller that oh, was. Oh, so it's not Blunderbuss. It's Boarding it House, usurped. isn't it? I mean, not, not no, Boarding House. No, Boarding House, house is 19. Usurped. 
No, boarding house was 2018. Was it? But it was, but it was usurped by Guardians of the Galaxy. Who? Yep. Yes. Guardians of the Galaxy sold 84,000 vinyl copies. That's crazy. Of that soundtrack. I mean, that's a good soundtrack. It is a good soundtrack. And that movie was kind of built around that soundtrack a little. And so, yeah. yeah. How about 2019? We're getting into recent history here. (laughs) Did did Drake release an album on vinyl? Uh, Billy Eilish. Abbey Road again. Oh, man. The one time I don't guess the stupid (laughs) Abbey Road shows up on this thing four times. Although, to be fair, Sgt. Pepper was number one in 2017, so that's the 50th. And Abbey Road was number one in 2019 at the 50th. And That's because la- they reissued them at mm-hmm. their 50th. Yes, and I've, I've got them. They're wonderful. 2020, and this is this is what I would consider, aside from Adele, a- an anomaly of the actual record industry reflecting the vinyl top seller. Okay. I was going to guess it's it's probably Taylor Swift or Lil Nas X. I'm guessing those were two very big names in 2020. Jesse? <laughs> Wait, she didn't put out Lover in 2020, did she? No. That's 2019. But Paul's hint was that it was not reflective. No, it is reflective of the Oh, it is reflective of the current okay. music. Unlike a lot of these. I'm trying to think. 2020. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. 2020. It's a record I don't own because I don't care, but I was... I was very close to seeing this person live because he, ah, well, I spoiled it. His his opener is somebody I do care very much about. Harry Styles. Yep, Harry Styles, number one. I love Harry Styles. Wow. I think I would. I just haven't done the dive. Jenny Lewis is opening for him right now, and I was oh, so close to seeing Harry Styles just to see Jenny Lewis open for Harry Styles. <laughs> but yeah, that's it. That was the... So we have uh, the Beatles on here four times. Uh, we have... I'm sorry, five times. Radiohead, Adele, Daft Punk, Harry Styles, David Bowie, various artists. This has been so much fun. Jesse. Yes. Where can people go to order online from Jesse Carl Vinyl? Where can people go to visit your shop? Give us the information. Okay, so if you're ever in Central Florida, you can come to Lakeland. I'm 40 minutes from Tampa, 50 minutes from Orlando. So if you're into all the touristy things, I'm right smack in between. You can also go to jessiecarlvinyl.com. We have a shop link right there. You can go onto our website and see what we're posting. We have all of our new release, our uh, like new releases and reissues on there. And then we update all of our pre-loved stuff uh, twice a week on there. Um, I love pre-loved as a as a yes. term. I love that. That's great. And we also have pre-loved CDs, and we have um, like cleaning supplies for your records. We have Jesse Carl vinyl merch. We have used books, like music-related books, biographies, memoirs, stuff like that. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And then if you're into Pearl Jam, we're still doing Pearl Jam content. We're just doing it on Instagram, so you can just find us at PJ Porch Podcast on Instagram, and we do Instagram lives once or twice a month awesome nice and i would like to thank you for being on the front lines of vinyl sales i know (laughs) it's it sounds like a tumultuous uh, situation here uh and the the struggles you face are sound maddening and extremely frustrating but 
I think the work you're doing is, uh, as Jack would probably say, the Lord's work. Uh, but really, <laughs> thank you for being on the front lines. I mean, I know you're getting paid to do it, but it's a labor of love, I imagine, at a certain point. And uh, I think it's important work that you're doing. So thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me on, you guys. You know I love to be here. Yeah. Anytime. Well, uh, yeah. Next time when Jack White's on here, you better invite me. We're going to find okay. – I mean, I don't know if he's going to come. We're going to have Shh, – we're going to find another topic and then – have a ball again I, I promise you that i don't know what the topic is right now maybe we'll just talk about taylor swift for two hours the resurgence of i don't want to talk about taylor swift don't invite me on if we're gonna talk about it okay, you're fine. not gonna All like right, my, you're not gonna like i'd rather talk about toto you're not gonna like my conversation how about we talk about the jonas brothers perfect okay. let's do it <laughs> okay thanks jesse <laughs> see you guys later thank you so much for being on of All course right, The Third Man Podcast was created, edited, and produced by Paul and James Kaminsky. Our theme song, We're the Third Men, was recorded by the band Radkey, who can be found at radkey.net. To contact the show, visit thirdmenpodcast.com or email thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at the thirdmen underscore podcast on Instagram at thirdmencast on Twitter, and search The Third Men on Facebook. Thanks to our Patreon patrons, to everyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed, and see you next time. Hey everybody, Paul here with a quick message for you. As James and I mentioned many times on the show, this podcast is 100% not-for-profit and a labor of our love for music. We pride ourselves in bringing you interesting, timely content as we have these past 100-plus episodes. Podcasting is, however, a weirdly expensive process, and we actually lose money on hosting, time, equipment, advertising, and all the other little things that we need to do to make these shows for you. So, to help break even on some expenses like those, James and I have set up a Patreon account where you can, if you like, chip in a few bucks to help keep the lights on. It can be as much or as little as you can swing, and all donations are greatly appreciated. The last thing we want to do is hound anybody for cash, so just know that listening to our show is always payment enough, but if you would like to help us out, that would be amazing. All right, that's all from me. Remember, you can head to patreon.com slash thirdmenpodcast, and a huge thank you to everyone who's donated already. All right, everybody, I'll see you on the show. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Well, we are, this is apropos of nothing.
No, it's not apropos of nothing. This is going to sound weird, but uh, the place where all of our Polish relatives end up after they die is Zilka's funeral home in Perthampton, New Jersey. Interesting. That is true. I I have actually blocked that from my head. Now it's all flooding back. That is really where we all end yeah, up. We end up at Zilka's. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, there's a Kaminsky tidbit of information no one needed to know. My husband is telling me he can still hear me on Discord. Ah, quit Discord. Done. Now, are you record? You're recording separately. Yes, he was using Discord as a tester for him to hear my microphone. So yes, yeah. I have um, OBS open. I'm recording already, so we're good. Okay. So, well, Ben. I'm pretty sure there's we have like a click farm at work for one of these because one of them we is didn't like, we didn't ask for it to no, farm for us it was like we somebody donated their click farm to us <laughs> we didn't we don't want it they can take I, it back I get these surges every once in a while and I can't Why explain them because they're like places overseas where like people just like click on ship what it's meant yeah it's meant to like drive numbers on things artificially how come when so, people tell me things like this i feel like i'm 190 years old <laughs> like what words are you actually <laughs> speaking to me right now and this has been so much fun yes i can't open this cents a day you could have <laughs> so I'm, I'm not gonna include that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> poor taste <laughs> we're now in several years of actual honest to god what <laughs> sorry hold on one second <laughs> baby emergency Thank God I don't have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, anyway. It's, yeah, it's, uh, my, my guy's sleeping over, like, literally two doors down, but he's a very heavy sleeper, so very thankful for that.